Mark 9, verses 33 through 37. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Luke 9, 46-48 An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called the child to himself and set him before them. And said, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the instruction that you continually give us through your word. Oh, we are so in need of these words from Christ. We recognize that we are so often, just like these disciples, engaged in petty discussions, trying to push ourselves before others. Please convict us of those sins of arrogance and pride and instill in us by Your grace deep and rich humility. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to Mark 9:33 in our Gospel Harmony, we're told that Jesus and His disciples came into Capernaum. Now, with Capernaum being mentioned, with this geographical designator being mentioned, we are reminded of all of the ministry that Jesus did from that town. No small amount of teaching nor small amount of miracles were performed or provided for Capernaum. And yet the town, by and large, remained in unbelief. Remember, it was on an earlier occasion, and on account of this, that Jesus pronounced a railing judgment against Capernaum. In Matthew 11, verse 23, He said, And you, speaking of Capernaum, will you not be exalted to heaven? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles that occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. It was clear that Capernaum had been granted a marvelous privilege as functioning as kind of the main home base of operations for the majority of Jesus' earthly ministry. But with that great privilege came great responsibility. And so therefore, Capernaum's rejection, wide-scale rejection of Christ, would one day be met with a great judgment. So it's on this occasion that we're told that Jesus comes back into Capernaum. But he's no longer focused on the crowds as we've already noticed. 
as his attention has shifted to quite exclusively the disciples, as he's continuing to prepare them for their trek to Jerusalem, where Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem, I must be betrayed, I must be delivered up, and I must then die, but then I must also then rise again after that. He's continuing to prepare them, though, for this journey to Jerusalem, and not only the events of his coming crucifixion and resurrection, but also for the months and years that were beyond that very important event. What we'll see here in the present scene is Jesus' intense concern for the disciples' relationship with one another. He's going to provide them with several lessons on their behavior towards each other. Matthew 18, Matthew chapter 18, is a famous chapter in Matthew, if for no other reason, for verses 15 through 17. Which Let me refresh your memory on those verses. It says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, these words from Jesus have been linked to the process of church discipline which we ourselves have mentioned before and have mentioned in specific that church discipline is largely neglected by many churches today. And by the way, that is to everyone's um, detriment. But while these words from Jesus do provide some counsel to pastors as to how to handle moments of official church discipline, and certainly they apply to that situation, we can't lose sight of the fact of where these words were originally given in their original context. Remember here, Jesus is providing instruction to his disciples. And there's a slew of instruction here in Matthew 18 given for the disciples' relationship one with another. While this provides counsel to pastors in handling erring church members, we can't lose sight of the fact that Jesus here is also providing instruction for all of his disciples, for all Christians. Every Christian bears responsibility in this regard. Not only the elders, not only the pastors. Also, contextually, we'll see together that Jesus doesn't merely deal with this issue of how do we discipline one another, how do we bring correction to one another, but he does it with an overarching concern that we exercise humility towards one another, that we be careful about not causing others to stumble, that we take care of our, the example that we're setting, that we show concern and provide protection for the weakest and the smallest and the littlest in the Christian community, that we keep short accounts with one another, that we confront sin, but that we forgive sin, and that we make it our business to reconcile with one another as quickly as possible. All of Jesus' instructions throughout Matthew 18 confirm a truth that all of us know from experience. Living in Christian community is hard work. It's hard work. There's nothing easy about living with other sinners when you yourself are one. Sinners living in the midst of community with other sinners is a very difficult thing. As a matter of fact, it's impossible apart from the grace of God. But the truth is, there's nothing sweeter on earth than living in genuine fellowship and unity with brothers and sisters in Christ. It is, quite truly, a foretaste of what we will experience in heaven. And yet, 
It must also be admitted that there are many times when there's no greater pain that's felt in these relationships as well. The closer the relationships, the more pain that is potential when feelings are hurt and offense is given. How is it that something that is so good can result in such pain? Perhaps some of you have been through specific difficulties in connection with the local church. Perhaps even this one at some moment. And you felt deeply hurt by some offense. I'm sure there were moments in which you may have desired to just give up on the whole thing altogether. And we know some who still, to this day perhaps, make the excuse that they don't go to church because of some hurt that they experienced by the hand of some Christian or some group of Christians. But we're told in Ephesians 5.25 that Christ loved the church and He gave Himself up for her. So given the fact that Christ loves the church and He went to such lengths to demonstrate that love, how can we ever dismiss or hate that which Christ loves? It is an untenable position to say that you hate that which Christ loves and meanwhile say you love Christ. You can't love Christ and meanwhile hate that which He loves. If He loves the church, you yourself must love the church as well. How can we treat with disdain that for which Christ died? We need to love the church And that means we're going to have to do the hard work of working through problems together. Would we all admit it's much easier to just go on down the road, (laughs) to just say, see ya, and I'll just make my life somewhere else. It is much more difficult to stay there and to work through the difficulties. But God's desire is that we do this very thing. He saved not a group of isolated individuals, but He has saved a people for His own possession. Which means He desires for these people to not only be related rightly to Him, but rightly related to one another. That we would be interrelated in community with one another. I love how the providence of God works that this message would be right before family camp. And we, we titled it family camp with kind of Two emphases, one being larger than the other. The the more minor is the fact that, yes, we provide the opportunity for family units to come and have a space amidst this place. But the larger reality is that we are all one family. We've all been brought into one family of God. And so family camp for us is every age, every occupation, it doesn't matter what you are, you are welcome to come and be a part of as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and as we grow in understanding, and as we grow in love for each other. Here's just a quick sample of the 106 occurrences of one another in the New Testament. You know, sometimes we don't pick up on how emphasized something is because it's kind of spattered about. It's kind of like, you know, it's been shotgunned all over the place. So you've got BBs and pellets all over the place of this fact. And sometimes we don't pick up on it if we just look at one text, as we often do in our times together, we look at one text and really study it. But let's not miss the overarching themes. This term, one another, happens 106 times in the uh, NASB New Testament. Here's just a sampling. B 
Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Admonish one another. Greet one another. Wait for one another. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. Abound in love for one another. Encourage one another. Build up one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Fervently love one another from the heart. We can add to all the one another's the over 200 occurrences in the Scriptures to the command, let us do something. Let us do something. You see, a single individual is incapable of fulfilling a let us command. (laughs) You can't do it alone. This is what's so crucially important about being a part of a church, part of a vibrant community of faith, is that we're to do things together. Let us do these things. It happens over 12 times in the book of Hebrews alone. Hebrews 10, 22 through 24 is among the most famous. We have three occurrences of it and one one another in this text. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You notice the emphasis in the Scriptures towards the one another's and the let us's. The us nature of these exhortations proves the necessity of public identification with a local church. How are you to be obedient to these commands without someone else making your me into an us or into a we? You need someone else in order to fulfill these biblical injunctions. It's quite clear that the Lord intended to save a people for His own possession. But our sinful, fleshly tendency when hurt or offended, as, by the way, friends, inevitably is going to occur. Uh, We have been saved by God's grace but we're still strugglers on this planet with sin. We all don't have to go any further than our own hearts to see just how depraved man is. So, inevitably, there's going to be offense. Inevitably, there's going to be hurts that occur between sinners, even sinners saved by grace. And our fleshly tendency, though, is to hurt back, dish it back, or harden up, or isolate ourselves from the source of difficulty. Many excuse their lack of church involvement by an appeal to some past hurt that was inflicted upon them by some member or group of Christians. But after encountering a problem with someone else, we often can see how our sinful responses want to go. We either become very heated where we throw a temper tantrum and it kind of explodes outwardly, or we become intensely cold and frigid. We come into ourselves, we isolate ourselves, we push away others. But neither response is what the Lord calls us to. Thanks be to God that Jesus gives special focus in His earthly ministry to the strains and tensions to which the Christian life in community is exposed. The Bible doesn't portray this picture as if, well, you want to become a Christian, you join a church, everything's going to be easy. It's all going to be okay. I mean, you're never going to have any issues. 
So this is what I think is so helpful for us to recognize is that we're set up from in advance for situations and difficulties to arise. Let's not be so surprised that they occur. Instead, let's endeavor to be ready for those moments and to respond in a godly way. In verses 1 through 5 in Matthew 18, Jesus will expose our sinful tendency to be intensely self-concerned and to exhibit a deficient sort of love towards others. In other words, that we love ourselves more than we love anyone else. That tendency is being exposed in verses 1 through 5. In verses 6 through 14, which we'll look at it on another Sunday, he's going to expose the impact that setting a bad example has on the community. That your life influences others. One way or the other, you're, you're either being a good example or you're being a stumbling block. One way or the other, you cannot escape the fact that you are setting an example. By the way, even your inactivity sets an example. Note that. Many times we just think of sins of commission, but sins of omission are just as wrong. They're just as sinful. So in those verses, he's going to talk about that reality. And then, for the majority of the, the rest of the chapter, verses 15 through 35, he's going to expose the devastation that arises when we become unwilling to forgive as we have been forgiven. Can I just say, we all need to be reminded of this. And it starts with me. I know these tendencies all too well in my own heart. How easy it is to become arrogant and prideful and to hold things against people. But all we end up doing is wrecking our own relationship with the Lord. It destroys ourselves and it destroys relationships around us. And we can't just come to this discussion of humility once. You know, oh, we've talked about humility before. It is a repeated, we need repeated lessons in community relations. The disciples themselves in need understood the need for continued vigilance So they themselves later on, after Jesus dies and rises again and ascends to heaven, they themselves gave exhortations in their letters to the fledgling churches. And these exhortations have quite a familiar ring to them. What do they sound like? Here's a couple examples. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. He says in Galatians 5, you've been called to freedom, brethren. Only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10, Peter exhorts, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint, as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Are you picking up on the one another's yet again in these texts? You see Peter repeating almost verbatim the instructions that Jesus gives here in Matthew 18. Not only that, but John does the same thing. In his first epistle, 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7, 
John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. So this week, I want us to consider Jesus' initial instruction to His disciples on this occasion in Capernaum here in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 5 in their parallel texts, in a sermon entitled, Humility Checkup. You see, all followers of Christ should examine their humility on the basis of at least three tests that I think are plainly manifest in this text before us. Three tests that we can all examine our humility by. The first is that we consider the content of our conversations. You can make this personal if you need it to. I will consider the content of my conversations. I will consider the content of my conversations. Secondly, and I'll slow down with each of these in a moment. The second test is, I will consider the condition of my motivations. I will consider the condition of my motivations. And third, I will consider my conduct in human relations. I will consider my conduct in human relations. By the way, if you're already ready to check me out, you're just like, I'm done with this. I don't need to listen to this at all. That sounded kind of funny. I hear people laughing. I'm sorry about that. Should you instantly respond to these statements? I've got all of that down pat. I'm the most humble person I know. You need this examination more than anyone else. You see, humility is one of those interesting things, isn't it? Once you glory in your humility, you've lost it. We all need to learn from the Lord in this regard. The first test that's helpful in examining your humility is to consider the content of your conversations. What becomes emphasized in your dialogues with, with other people? You see, the topics that we discuss reveal a whole lot about us. Our interests, our knowledge base, our foundational beliefs, our ambitions are often quite exposed, perhaps even more exposed than we realize in what we talk about. The things that we tend to dwell on in our speech says much about what our minds dwell on. Interestingly, even our questions often reveal our basic understandings and intentions. Isn't it interesting to note that? That even in supposed uh, you know, non-biased interviews, if you watch TV or listen to the radio, you can tell just from the questions asked what's behind them. Right? You can tell by questions that are asked and questions that are not asked what bias is being put forward. We can even assert things about ourselves by the very questions that we're so intent on. We have an interesting case in point in our text this morning. While en route to Capernaum, the disciples get into a debate among themselves regarding who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. 
Now, we might ask, what brought about such a discussion? Why on this occasion? Why here? Why now? Well, could it be a result of the fact that they had heard now Jesus repeat a couple of times the fact of His coming resurrection? Were they considering their relative position in the resurrection? I think that it seems unlikely, given the fact that the disciples had virtually skipped over that part of Jesus' testimony regarding coming events. Remember, Jesus makes all those statements, and all they can dwell on is suffering and death. They seem to almost miss the fact that Jesus says at the end of it, and must rise again three days later. They seem to miss that altogether. And for that reason, I don't think that's what has really fostered this discussion. Perhaps instead the discussion has become prominent because of Jesus' announcement of his coming death. It might have been the result of contemplations of this. Who's going to be in charge when Jesus dies? Who's the next one in line? Who's the second in command? Or, perhaps the disciples' discussion was a reaction to Jesus' words in the previous account to Peter. We're told in Matthew 18.1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, at what time? Well, at the time at which Jesus has just finished this dialogue with Peter. And you remember with me, last time there was a discussion regarding the temple tax and whether or not Jesus paid the temple tax. And Jesus' answer to Peter involves, before giving this miraculous provision, right, by the coin being caught from a fish out out of the lake, before he describes that way in which he's going to provide for it, he first puts in place the right context for Peter where he says, from whom do the, son, the kings of earth collect customs or pull tax? From their sons or from strangers? And Peter says, from strangers. And we had a discussion about what those terms meant. And I put forward that there was a discussion regarding the royal family or those outside of the royal family. In other words, the king wouldn't tax his own children to uh, foster his coffers because his children are one and the same with him. He, he wouldn't tax his own children. But he would tax people outside of the royal family. And so Jesus says, so what you're saying here is the sons are exempt. So he's now made a distinction between those who are sons of the king of kings and those who are strangers to the king of kings. Perhaps their argument developed from a consideration of Jesus' words here, distinguishing between sons of the kingdom and strangers of the kingdom. And it got them thinking about, well, where do I figure in the sonship? Where am I in the ladder of advancement among the sons of the kingdom? One more detail might also fill in the picture a little bit better for us as well as we contemplate the overarching context in which this happens. Remember, Jesus' transfiguration was not very long before this event. And for that moment, Jesus had selected only three to accompany him up the mountain. Peter, James, and John. Remember, they come back down and there's the whole uh, scene there developed with the demon-possessed boy who seems to have some sort of epileptic seizures going on and the the nine other disciples can't cast the demon out and Jesus comes and he casts it out. We have that whole discussion. But we have all of that going on as well as then this intervening story about Peter being brought a question from these collectors as to what Jesus does regarding the temple tax question. As well as just the overarching fact of Peter's kind of spokesmanship for the disciples at large. I mean, Peter's the one that's almost always the one saying something when Peter asks questions. So all of this might kind of come together and coalesce into this moment where these details have now prompted envy, jealousy, and competition among the disciples. 
Why weren't we selected to go up on the mountain? Why were just these three? Why is Peter the one that seems to be the spokesman so often? It could have fostered feelings of envy or jealousy. And on the other hand, it could have fostered feelings of pride or arrogance. Like, I'm the one. I'm the guy. There was much material. Here's the point. There's much material here for horizontal comparison. And they're engaging in it while on the road. By the way, this wouldn't be the last time either that these sorts of discussions would happen. Great reminder to us, isn't it? Isn't this how it is for us too? How often do we need to be retold the importance of humility? How often do we need to check our hearts for arrogance and pride? Continually, right? We see the very thing. Here are a couple of quick texts where we see this happening again. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. We have a discussion that comes from James and John's own mother. Mom comes into the scene and says, i got a question, Jesus. He's like, yeah, what do you wish? And she says, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. There's good old mom, you know, pulling for her boys, wanting them to be on Jesus' right and left in the coming kingdom. Now, can we imagine for just a moment how the other ten felt about this whole discussion? Well, we don't even have to imagine, do we? Because we're told, we're told this. Well, Jesus first answers, do you know what, what you're asking? Are you able to drink the cup I'm, able, I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we're able. He said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now listen, after hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them to himself. He huddles them around, right? He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and that great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus giving similar instruction in Matthew 23. I'm not going to read that whole passage. We will get to it soon enough in our Gospel Harmony. One other occasion, though, that is striking is of all places, a discussion of relative greatness among the disciples occurs at the Last Supper. At the Last Supper. You know what's so startling about this is what did Jesus do at the Last Supper? Besides the fact of enjoying Passover and imbuing with a whole new significance, what does Jesus do there? Yes, very good. He washed his disciples' feet. And what do we see the disciples engaged in? Luke 22, 24-27. There arose among them a dispute as to which one of them was to be regarded the greatest. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. Those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, the leader, like the servant. Who is greater? The one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But yet I am the one who among you serves. So so beautiful about all of this. If you want to talk about prerogative and authority, Jesus has it all. And meanwhile, how does he exercise his prerogative and his authority? By submitting to the, his heavenly Father's will in every regard. By being the servant of all. This problem wouldn't be dealt with in a day. It would be an ongoing struggle. And still to this day, it is an ongoing struggle, isn't it? For the disciples of Christ, sadly. We often don't like to admit it, do we? 
envy and jealousy and bitterness resides in the heart. It sometimes does make manifest itself at certain moments, but we do our best to cover it, don't we? Because we know that it's wrong, ultimately. We who are the Lord's, we know it's wrong. How would you feel should Christ ask you, what have you been talking about? What have you been talking about? This is what he does on this occasion. Mark tells us that when they come into the house, Jesus turns to his disciples and asks, what were you discussing while we were on the way? And we're told the disciples immediately become silent. Isn't that incredible? What an incredible picture. It's almost like a bunch of schoolboys have just been called by a teacher. You know, what have you been doing? All of a sudden, nobody wants to say a word, right? Everyone's completely silent. Their silence indicates that they feel guilty about the discussion. They don't want to tell Jesus what they had just been discussing. They inherently knew the discussion was not free from sinful ambition. But it's not as though Jesus is unaware. Luke tells us Jesus knew the debate of their hearts. Not only was he aware of something being discussed, but he knew what was going on inside of the hearts of his disciples. And so it is today, friends. Jesus knows what's going on, the dialogue that's happening even in the silence of your own heart. Those things that no one else can necessarily pinpoint. Jesus knows. And there's no use trying to hide it. Matthew's gospel just cuts to the chase. It it seems that the disciples' silence is eventually dropped as they respond to Jesus' question with a question. There's a good way, right? Well, we don't want to discuss what we're talking about, so instead, why don't we just ask Jesus a question? Uh, Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Isn't it interesting how sometimes you can just like put something in more general terms and it sounds like maybe it's acceptable now, you know? Now, it would sound really bad. Jesus, can I be number one? No, that's not good. But who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus? The evasive maneuver, though, doesn't save them from demonstrating their need for correction because the fundamental premise of their whole entire dialogue, whether outwardly or inwardly, is fundamentally flawed. But note, it's their conversation that demonstrates something about that. Watch the content of your conversations. We could say a host of other things, couldn't we? I mean, if you find yourself always talking about yourself, <laughs> if you're always the hero of all of your tales, if it's always, everything that ever comes out of your mouth is just how great I am, we can probably quickly start to evaluate the condition of heart. I hope that all of us have enough humility and openness and transparency and love for one another that we'd be able to bring correction to each other should that be the case. That we could actually speak to one of our brothers or sisters in Christ and say, I'm concerned about this. You know, arrogance and pride is one of those difficult things to handle, isn't it? Because often when somebody is confronted with pride, they'll instantly reply, no, you're the prideful one. How, how dare you judge me? You know, this is usually the way those things go. Just manifesting all the more the arrogance and pride that resides within our hearts and that we're at struggle against. The second point of examination, though, requires that we go past conversation because there are a number of occasions in which perhaps you do an excellent job of covering up what's going on in your heart. You don't make a lot of expression with it verbally. Those of us who speak more, it usually comes out because it's just going to come out because we speak more. Those of us who are a little bit more quiet, perhaps it's just as much there. It just doesn't make as much expression off of our lips. So we have to consider, secondly, the condition of our motivations 
consider the condition of your motivations. We have to ask questions like, what do I desire and crave? What do I live for? What do I die for? What am I willing to die for? What, what do I give my life toward? Disciples on this occasion were intent on asserting their own prominence. They were jockeying for position among the rest and spending time contending with one another rather than working with one another. They were interested in personal advantage. They were considering the relative greatness of their future status, of their future power, of their future authority, rather than the qualities which the Lord deemed great and the advancement and greatness of the Lord's kingdom. They're concerned about their own private greatness in the coming kingdom rather than being concerned for the advancement of the greatness of Christ, the advancement of the greatness of the glory of God. And let's just be honest and transparent. We all know how quickly jealousy and selfish ambition can take hold of us. We also know just how destructive those ambitions are. We had read from James 3, discussion of wisdom from above and wisdom from below. What uniquely marks worldly wisdom is that it's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. It results in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And ultimately, what happens is you destroy yourself in relationship to the Lord and you destroy relationships as well. When self reigns, relationships degrade. When we push forward ourself, then necessarily what happens is everyone else takes second seat and those relationships start to fall apart. So we'll serve to put a curb on selfish pursuits. How can we curb this? How do we handle this reality? Jesus responds to the situation with a very unique object lesson. Picture it with me. Comes into the house. What are you guys talking about? Uh, who's going how, how is greatness determined in the kingdom, Jesus? Jesus takes a young child. Imagine the picture. The, the picture is that of, of some young person, probably under the age of 12. So somewhere between there's a separate word for infant so it wouldn't have been an infant it would have been a child somewhere a young child and he brings him over and he holds him close we're told that he holds his child in his arms what a visual aid to remember perhaps here maybe a picture second only to like Jesus washing the disciples feet he makes what makes this illustration so especially interesting is the fact that typically rabbis had absolutely no time or place for interactions with children. Persons under 12 were not formally taught the Torah by rabbis. There's even a record of an ancient rabbinical commentary which explained, quote, chattering children will bring a man to ruin, end quote. The belief was children are the women's deal. And we as men don't interact with them because they're going to, not only is it a waste of my time, but they're going to bring me down. That was the thought. How greatly Jesus' actions stand in stark contrast. Surrounded by grown men, this child must have looked completely insignificant. And that's the whole point. The insignificance of children, by the way, was even more promulgated or pronounced in Jesus' own day. Children were powerless. They were without status. They were utterly dependent. 
Their status was the lowest of the low in the societal hierarchy. They had no say whatsoever. And notice how compassionate, by the way, Jesus is with his own disciples, too. Kind of this interesting picture. I mean, he could have just just outright roughly rebuked this, but instead he grabs a child, holds the child in his arms, and then proceeds to teach them something about the kingdom of God. He explains that apart from becoming like a child, even entrance into the kingdom of God is impossible. He says, unless a man turn, the word translated by some, converts, and becomes like a child, he will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's much discussion as to what Jesus means by this simile. Become like a child. We're all familiar that there are other references in the Scriptures where being childish is condemned. It's, it's rebuked. You should have moved past these childish things, for example. And sometimes we still utilize childishness in that regard to speak of lacks of maturity and, and whatnot. But many have pointed that what Jesus is trying to liken this unto is some qualities such as a child's willingness to admit weakness, a child's quickness to cry for help. We definitely do experience these as qualities which are ultimately required for entering the kingdom of God. A man must see his sin. He must admit his need. He must cry out for salvation. So some have pointed that this is the connection that Jesus is making. Certainly, in an overarching way, Jesus is teaching the principle of humility. And for some people, they have put forward the idea that a child is kind of like the emblem of humility. But I think that Jesus gets at the issue of humility through a different means. He's doing it by having his disciples consider the relative social status of a child. What's being pictured here is not so much inherent humility in children, but their social status within society. His point is not so much about adopting a particular ethical characteristic of children, like as if children are innocent or intensely humble or intensely receptive or intensely trustful, although some of those things might carry some of the time. But instead, I think what he's trying to put forward here is that you need to accept for yourself a position in the social scale like that of a child. You know, one of the benefits of interpreting this in this regard is the acknowledgement that children are not innocent, (laughs) children are not sinless, and they're not inherently humble. Any parent or teacher can tell you that. Yeah? I look at my children and I go, oh, wow, what a, man, if I was trying to learn humility, I'm just going to you know, look at my children. You don't, people don't do that. We, we know that pride resides in our children, too. They're arrogant and prideful as well. The point that Jesus is making is that you have to prepare yourself to take on this status, the lowest of the low in the hierarchy. That's what it takes. You must be completely emptied of self. You must admit your spiritual bankruptcy. You must admit that you don't deserve entrance into the kingdom of heaven, much less jockey for a high position in the kingdom of heaven. In order to enter, you have to completely divulge yourself of worldly ambition. You see, the disciples' concern for a great position in heaven betrays worldly ambition rather than godly ambition. Humility is absolutely required to even enter into heaven. 
You have to lay down the incessant desire for seeking your own glory. Entering God's kingdom is accompanied by a complete submission to the Lord. Being content with whatever the Lord should give me. Whatever He should, do, he should wish to do with me. Whatever task He might assign me. The point is, concern for status, personal status, and personal hierarchy is not compatible with God's scale of values. And in being a follower of Christ... This involves necessarily the eradication of these natu- this natural fallen human tendency to push forward ourself, to advance our own agenda, to advance our own kingdom, to advance our own position. Instead, a reorientation is required. To be a disciple of Christ, you must be rid of worldly ambitions and beware of masking, by the way, worldly ambitions as Christian ones. Here is the disciples. Well, I just, I just want a high position in your kingdom, though, Lord. This is what marks, I think, what marks the popular Gospels that propagate self-fulfillment and personal advancement is so horrendous. The way of self is the way of disqualification from the kingdom of God. Those who glorify self will not only not be great in the kingdom, they will never enter the kingdom at all. You see how Jesus turns this whole thing around? He's saying the basis of this conversation is inherently a sinful one. In order to even enter my kingdom means being done with this. And you're manifesting qualities that are not of my kingdom at all. You see, the fundamental difference between the kingdom of heaven and earthly kingdoms is being manifest here in Jesus' words. He says, if anyone wishes to be first, he will be last of all and servant of all. Positions in Christ's kingdom operate differently than how they so often work and how they are apportioned here on earth. Christ grants authority for a completely different purpose that many people try to grasp authority for themselves. He does it for the purpose of enabling greater service to God's people. As one submits to the Lord and lives in humility before Him, honoring and preferring others before Himself, then such a one is granted further opportunity and further responsibility for service. This is the point. The pursuit is not the greatest position. The pursuit is the greatest service. That's what we're after. We're after the greatest potential for serving others. The goal is not self-aggrandizement, but self-denial. Lowliness and service are foundational elements to kingdom membership. Rather than trying to overthrow others, or outsmart others, or outbid others, or fighting with others for supreme place and pushing others down, the drive of God's kingdom is engagement in lowly service. True greatness is not seen in receiving service, but in giving service. And this flips every paradigm on its head. Because everywhere else, we acknowledge greatness as those who are served by everyone else. Those who are looked up to by everyone else. But Jesus says in my kingdom, no, 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 you've got this all completely wrong. The greatest is the one who serves the least. The least person. He serves the most, serves the least person. Greatness is seen in giving service, not in receiving service. And underlying all of this is the idea that the disciples have been made joint partners in the advancement of God's cause, not their own. We see this all over the place too, don't we? I mean, how good would a football team be if every player on the team went after their own thing? 
right? Like, you know, all of a sudden you have the center going, you know what, I really don't feel like snapping the ball today. I think I'm just going to pick it up and start running down the field. Or, you know, or I don't really want to say, I'm going to hike it to him when he tells me to. I'm going to wait. I'm going to do it when I feel like it. Whenever I desire, I'm going to do it, you know? You can't, if everybody on the field all of a sudden decided, I'm going to advance whatever brings me the most glory. By the way, I always thought that offensive linemen are like the, the least gloried position. Because you're in trouble if someone sacks the quarterback. And if you do what's right, somebody else gets the glory, right? It's the wide receiver who catches the touchdown pass, or it's the running back who gets through the hole that you provided. There is no glory for the offensive line, except in this like, passing. Oh, yeah, we should be thankful for how they, what they've done. Right? But, but that's what I think is so amazing about that position, is it exists to push forward others. And I think true greatness is seen this way in God's kingdom, where we pour out our lives as a sacrifice and service unto others that they might be lifted up, that they might be pushed forward in their advancement of the Lord. Matthew recounts Jesus' words, Therefore, whoever will humble himself as this child, this is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Calvin provides a great working definition of humility. He says this, A man is truly humble who neither claims any personal merit in the sight of God, nor proudly despises brethren, or aims at being thought superior to them, but reckons it enough that he is one of the members of Christ, and desires nothing more than that the head alone should be exalted. There it is. That is it. He's captured this. The point of humility is, I am just thankful to be part of God's family. And we're going to push forward and watch Christ be exalted. We want to see Jesus lifted up, not ourselves. Jesus' followers are not great achievers. They're not self-made men. They haven't earned their status and carved out a niche for themselves in God's kingdom. They recognize that all that they are and all that they have is a result of God's grace. They're totally dependent upon the Lord God. They've been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. The third and final indicator of your humility, third and final test that we can look at, consider this morning, is to consider your conduct in human relations Consider your conduct in human relations. You can then personalize this. I will consider my conduct in human relations. Questions like this come up, and they do say a whole lot about us. Who do you receive? What causes you to not receive someone? The term receive here speaks to the idea of welcoming or showing hospitality to someone. We all know what it feels like to be warmly received by someone else. Jesus finishes his response to the disciples' pursuit of selfish gain by giving them a new goal that affords with God's desire for them. Instead of trying to push other ones down, he asks them, how are you doing in welcoming others? I mean, here's the point. Having been put in place as little ones, they need to receive one another with that in mind, showing tenderness and love to each other as joint heirs in God's kingdom. While they ought to have been improving one another, this whole trip over here to Capernaum, they've been trying to outdo one another. They were meant to be co-laborers, rendering mutual assistance to each other, but instead they they had functioned as competitors, striving with wicked ambition to out-excel each other. What's the solution to a lack of hospitableness? Jesus gives his disciples a refocusing. Instead of pushing and shoving one another in an effort to 
climb to the top of the hill before anyone else. They must see themselves as little ones, equally dependent upon the Father and given the task of loving one another as fellow children. You see, the humble see themselves as they really are before God, not via comparison with others. Once we recognize our true place before the Lord, we'll no longer play favorites with people or snub those whom we feel are less deserving of our love and affection. If we take the lowest place, then we can greet all others with respect and kindness, for they are esteemed as better than us. We had read this morning our scripture readings over in Luke 14 as well. And what a stunning parable Jesus tells, right? About people coming in, and this is fostered off of what he's actually observing. He sees people coming into a banquet, and they're all taking the best seats. And so he pushes forward this parable in which he says, just imagine the disgrace that falls on the person who sits in a seat that's for a position of honor, for an honored guest, and then is asked to get up in the midst of that banquet and move to the lower seat. Says, on the other hand, what you should do is sit in the lowest seat and allow him to come and say, what are you doing down here? Let me move you forward. Again, putting forward the principle, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. At Shepherd's Conference, uh, Christian Justin and I always chuckle because there's a huge line of people trying to get into John MacArthur's uh, church's sanctuary there, Grace, Grace's, Grace Church Sanctuary, as for all the preaching. And remember, this is just a Shepherd's Conference is a group of pastors, just tons and tons of pastors. So as everyone pushes and shoves past each other, trying to get to the front of the sanctuary and sit down, I remember one day, Justin cries out above the din, Remember your testimonies! Remember your testimonies! Right? I always thought it would be really interesting to see, you know, one of those speakers come in and say, okay, I like the first three rows, I'll move the back, and everybody in the back just move here to the front, right? But, but, that, but it's so funny, because we get in the midst of even Christian endeavor, right, and be pushing and shoving each other to get into a worship service. Now, there is another side of this, which I was actually rejoicing in, is, is that, man, they're pushing for the front. Guys, you can come to the front. Anyway, no, but, you know, I, 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 I just find it so phenomenal, though, that we can, in the midst of Christian pursuits, Engage in selfish ambition, wanting to take the best for ourselves. Jesus also makes plain that our reception of the little ones has implications on our relationship with Him and the one who sent Him. And and look, look how easy this comparison is. You reject my child, you reject me. That's the idea. He says, to reject one of these little ones is to reject me. And if you reject me, guess what? You've rejected the one who sent me. You see, our attitudes towards the Father's children indicates our attitude towards the Father. The world's patterns are concerned with the rich, the powerful, the famous. Value those who can do something for you. But God's people view things quite differently. I think this is why the Scriptures explain what pure and undefiled religion is. It's taking care of the widow and the orphan, right? Why then? Why those people? Because those are the people that are the least capable of reciprocating in kind by giving some gesture of return thanks. You see, Christians value men on a whole different scale. We don't value men because of rank or position. We value men, first and foremost, we value all men because they were created in the image of God. All men created in the image of God. That's why we fight for the unborn. That's why we fight against euthanasia. That's why we fight for these principles. Because all of mankind is made in the image of God and are valuable as a result. We fight 
for life. Because we know that life is a gift from God. But not only that, but we have a special love for God's people because God is forming the image of His own Son into the redeemed. And how can we treat with disdain those for whom Christ died? So we have a love for all people, but we have a special love for the community of faith. So how can we show hatred and animosity and bitterness towards our brothers and sisters in Christ, those for whom Christ died? This is why James gives another practical exhortation in chapter 2. I won't read it now. You can read it on your own. Where he talks about those people who are they're giving preference to those who are high and rich. And they're neglecting the poor. And there's a big rebuke that comes. Jesus' instruction prohibits all horizontal comparisons between His followers. Instead of giving instruction for becoming the greatest... Jesus ends up speaking only of greatness, which can be had, but you don't get it through comparison. You don't become great by pushing someone else down. That's the way our world works. That's not the way the kingdom of God operates. Greatness is not inherent to a person, but instead established by relationship with Jesus by God's grace alone. And since it's impossible to separate the, love, the, the Lord from those who are His own, Romans 8 speaks to this reality, welcoming anyone who belongs to Jesus is like welcoming Jesus Himself. And those who welcome Christ welcome the Father who sent Him. And conversely, to reject one of Christ's own is to reject Christ. Remember Jesus' words to Saul when he, Saul is dramatically converted? He's on, on the road to Damascus and remember the light shines on him and he says, and the Lord says, so also, why are you persecuting me? Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Well, who is Saul persecuting? Christians. You see, the Lord's identification with his own people is of such a nature that to persecute God's people is to persecute God himself. Jesus identifies with his children. And so what we recognize in all of this is the only way that we can deal with this selfish ambition and have it replaced with humility is yet again a contemplation of the Gospel. It is the Gospel that frames our thinking. The Gospel is not just a one-time experience where a person comes to conversion and comes to faith in Christ for repentance of their sins. The Gospel is the ongoing reality of every disciple of Jesus Christ. And it is this that informs our relationships one with another. It is a recognition of the forgiveness that we have been granted by God's grace and mercy alone that causes us to forgive others. It is a deep gratitude that overwhelms us. It is a love for Him that, that has been granted to us that also then overflows into love for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. That is the only acceptable response. And I will see in coming weeks that this love for God and others might mean that discipline is necessary at times, but this is done ultimately with God's glory and man's good in mind. Philip Ryken sums it all up very well. The dispute between the disciples was foolish because like us, none of the disciples were all that great in the first place. Remember, these were men who could hardly stay awake to the end of a prayer meeting. Trying to determine the greatest disciple was a little bit like trying to find the world's tallest pygmy. Even if it were possible to figure out the answer, it would hardly matter. 
It was also foolish because the disciples were striving to reach the wrong end of the scale. Jesus had been telling them to deny themselves. And, and, but rather than carrying their crosses, they were still trying to climb to the top of the spiritual ladder. Let's all be diligent to conduct regular humility checkups. And may God grant us grace to see our own arrogance and pride, to repent of it, to receive God's forgiveness, and then to take the lowest place of service and cooperate with others in the advancement of God's kingdom and God's glory, not ours. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for this much-needed correction. We must corporately confess the many times that we have responded in an ungodly way towards one another. And Lord, may I be the first to make that confession. There have been times when I have misspoken. There have been times when I have had horrible intentions of heart where I have maintained arrogance and pride when there should have been humility and brokenness. Lord, cause me to reflect upon the glories of the Gospel, to recognize the greatness that I have been granted. For there is no greatness inherent to me. The only greatness that I have the potential of experiencing is that which is found in, in relationship with Your Son, Jesus, who is great. Lord, may You foster pure and undefiled relationships in this congregation. I pray that we would truly love one another from the heart. That those one another's of the Scriptures would be the ongoing expression of ourselves towards one another. Lord, please protect us from cliquishness or from arrogance or bitterness towards one another. Perhaps there even in these moments as we're contemplating what Your Word says in these regards, I pray that You might even bring to our minds particular relationships that need to be restored and reconciled, if there are any. Give us grace and wisdom to know how to handle that. Help us to love You and love others enough to work out the, through and through the difficulties, knowing that You provide grace to make this happen. Thank You for the sanctifying that You do in all of our lives. We all recognize we're sinners saved by grace in need of Your forgiveness and the ongoing forgiveness of our uh, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Please affect this in our midst and cause us to return to these thoughts, return to a contemplation, a testing of our humility. May You instill in us a true godly ambition and a true and genuine humility. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.